if I can't have $75 million, I want power. Hi, and welcome to Meet Your Heroes. I'm Audrey. And I'm Elliot. And this is the show where we ignore the very good conventional wisdom to never meet your heroes, and instead get up close and personal with the lesser-known legacies and real-life bad behavior of some of history's most notable and beloved people. We have a, a big one today. Can you be more specific? What more specificity do you need? I said, we have a big one today. Yeah, what's the one? Okay, well, fair. Uh, we have a big episode, both big in terms of the content. There's a lot to cover. Mm-hmm. person did a lot of things, mm-hmm. pretty important, but also big in terms of like their impact on at least United States history in particular. For sure. Also, um, another liberal hero. Correct. And a little bit of Pride Month flavor sprinkled in. Okay. Are you ready for this? I stay ready. Yes. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Fair enough. Then we'll get to it. This week's hero is Franklin Delano Roosevelt. What do you know about FDR? Just a handful of things. I know the WPA. And for listeners who don't? Ooh. (laughs) (laughs) It's the... um, You know the acronym. (laughs) Yeah, it's the Depression Era Workers... Progress Administration, yes. Works Progress Administration, um, where there were a number of civic and artistic and infrastructure um, initiatives to help put people back to work. Yep. Anything else? I know that he was married to Eleanor. Yes. I know that he used a wheelchair. Mm Mm-hmm. I know what he looks like. Yeah, yeah. Cousin of Teddy Roosevelt? That's correct. Those are the things I know. That's about it. Okay, fair enough. Is he he on any money? He is. Um, He's on some money, yeah. So, FDR is on the dime. Yes. He is on the 10-cent piece. He is an American president. He is, like, by all reasonable definitions, a hero to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, out of 20 academic surveys that ranked all of the United States presidents so far, uh, based on their the popular opinions of them, their effectiveness, their leadership, uh, he has never been rated lower than third okay. of the best presidents. Wow. Six times of those 20, he was rated number one. Okay. Which means that people are saying he's better than George Washington and Abraham Lincoln as a president. Well, we've done episodes on both of them, and the bar is low. <laughs> I mean, they they both did some, some good things. Oh, yeah. But I mean, in terms of like, could you in the 20th century make better decisions than people in the 18th and 19th centuries? Yes. Yes, you could. In addition to his rating overall as an exceptional president... He is the leader of the Democratic Party, and he built this New Deal coalition that, Mm -hmm. frankly, defined modern liberalism in America. Mm -hmm. So for a while, this is probably especially confusing to our listeners who aren't in the States. Uh, In the United States, there's currently two big political parties, Democrats and Republicans. And if you go back far enough in history, they're 
platforms actually were swapped. They had each other's opposite names. So mm -hmm. the people who we would today call Democrats were called Republicans, like if you go back far enough, like 150, 200 years. Mm -hmm. And the people, vice versa, right? The people who are Republicans we call Democrats. He is at the stage where people who we think of as liberals are called Democrats in America. And he like defines what that means for the 20th and 21st centuries still. Got it. And so let's just take a moment here because we have been accused of being politically biased on the show and not doing and not featuring a lot of liberal like what people would consider liberal people, artists, politicians, etc. But we've actually featured a number. This is just one of the most explicitly liberal heroes. I mean, we did Harvey Milk last week, who's as liberal as they get. Uh, I well, mean, I just no. take it back. That's yeah, true. That's true. Was, that? yeah, yeah, he was like a Republican Wall Street guy for a while. But, you know, we did John Lennon. That's true. That's true. Yeah, I would say, again, we are nonpartisan. We are just also non-bullshit. Yeah, as a podcast. As a podcast. And, uh, yeah, nobody's perfect, as we will see. Not at all. His achievements as president included starting the Securities and Exchange Commission, which is like the watchdog for Wall Street. Um, he put into place the National Labor Relations Act, which allows for unionization and labor voting. Mm. Signed the Fair Labor Standards Act, mm -hmm. which gave us things like a minimum wage and eight hour a day, 40 hour work weeks. Got it. Which also means that it put into place the idea of having time and a half overtime if you went over those 40 hours a week. So like a lot of like very progressive, you know, tentpole policies. He started the FDIC, which made sure people got their monies from banks, even in a crisis. He started Social Security, which is like one of the largest, you know, social safety net mm -hmm. programs that exists in yeah. the States. Handout after handout after handout. <laughs> <laughs> Andy's on the dime. Andy's on the dime. Can't even believe it. Look at all this government overreach. Yes, right? So he has got his liberal bona fides. Let's dive in. FDR is born in 1882. Oh, wow. Yes. So he's born in the 19th century. Yeah, sure is. To an incredibly wealthy family. Okay. The Roosevelt family is one of the first families to come to America before it's America. What? So it goes back like five or six generations before him. But to give you a sense of like how wealthy these people were, FDR's great-great-grandfather mm -hmm. is Isaac Roosevelt. I'm going to go through this family tree for a couple of generations. Okay. Just for clarity in advance. Yeah. The names of the grandparents go Isaac and then Jacobus or James for short. <laughs> and then Isaac again. Okay. And then Jacobus or James for short. Okay. And then we get to FDR. Great. And so, maybe you could sketch this out on a piece of paper or something and I can post it on the on the social media just so folks can Yes. I mean keep we're, not, we're not gonna get into a big tree. This is just like one line of we're grandfathers. Just going, Isaac, down. Jacobus, Isaac, Jacobus. FDR. Yes. How do you spell Jacobus? <laughs> <laughs> like Jacob? Okay. But with a bus at the end. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So, Jacobus. Jacobus. Yes. Are you so, sure that's how it's pronounced? You want to say Jacobus? I don't I don't know. I've never heard that name before. <laughs> yeah, it's not super popular. Bring it back. Make it the new Dylan. You could, I mean, if he were alive right now, we would call him Jacobusson. Yeah, okay. There we go. <laughs> or Jacobusson. <laughs> Either way. Okay, we got two of them. Yep. Elder and younger. Yes. Okay, so we're going way, way, way back. So the great-great-grandfather of FDR, mm -hmm. Isaac Roosevelt. Yes. 
he made a fortune in sugar refining. So a ton of slave labor sugar coming in from the Caribbean. Uh That Roosevelt family just soaking up the cheap slave labor and the cheap sugar, making a fortune refining it. Apparently, like, the sugar refinery was the finest building in New York next to the cathedral. Like, it was the next nicest place. That's how rich they were. They owned, like, a hundred blocks in Manhattan before it was Manhattan. Like, these people are wealthy, wealthy. Sure. The next in the line, Mm -hmm. FDR's great-grandfather, Jacobus James, (laughs) born in 1760. The first. He gets the sugar money, works in the sugar business for a while, and then becomes a banker. Mm -hmm. He is the kind of banker that takes over the Bank of New York from Alexander Hamilton. Ah, wow. After Hamilton starts it, the Roosevelt is the next guy in charge. I thought you were going to say he's the kind of banker that's in Mary Poppins. <laughs> I mean, you're not too far off. <laughs> that is an English banker. Uh, the, I just meant like in spirit. Yeah, in spirit. He's in, there. In tone. He's like, he has a tone of a Mary Poppins banker, like not the hero of the story. <laughs> and the dress, hopefully. Yeah. Yes. Same time period, around the revolution. So if you imagine... Jacob, this Jacobus James is inheriting just incredible amounts of sugar, slavery uh, generated sugar wealth. And then on top of that, becomes a banker and makes even more money. Then you get to FDR's grandfather, Isaac. Okay. Who at this point is so wealthy, he doesn't really have a job. <laughs> like he, he's living off generational wealth and inheritance. Mm-hmm. He's like marginally involved in the sugar business and like watching the accounts. But basically, they're just like, living off of incredible wealth at this stage. FDR's father, who is the next James in the list, (laughs) uh, born in 1828, and he went to Harvard and got a law degree and then never bothered to become a lawyer, just lived out the inheritance. Was he almost 60 when FDR was born? 28 to 82? Oh, yeah, he was. He was. Wow. Yeah. I bet he was on his, like, third or fourth wife. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I don't have that in front of me, but it doesn't sound wrong. Um, so, yes, he, he's living off, you know, three or four or five generations of wealth at this point. Wow. And then FDR is born. Yes. So by the time it gets down to FDR, the family is had been worth between like $150 and $50 million in today's money. Okay. Uh, FDR at the low end has like 50 to $75 million in the family when he's born. Okay. So his childhood is things like sailing on yachts while he travels Europe, right? He is just rolling in it, never has a care in the world. It's clear from the time he's a young child, he's never going to have to worry about money in his life, really. He goes on to Harvard like his dad did, is an average student, not particularly talented academically or in sports. Doesn't have to be. No, exactly. Got money. (laughs) What do you need talent for? His father dies in 1900. Okay. At the ripe age of 72. Yeah. And... He's probably expecting an inheritance at some point, but mm-hmm. his mother's still alive. Yeah, he's only like 18, and she's probably like 36. Yeah. So he <laughs> gets this trust fund, and for the rest of his life, he's going to get like $500,000 a year. But his mom is much younger than his dad, and so, spoiler alert, his mom does not die until like three or four years before he dies. So he never actually gets to touch this massive wealth for himself. (laughs) Like, it's in the family. Sure. But he is making the poultry, you know, whatever, $500,000 a year in today's money Mm -hmm. for free, doing nothing as a trust fund baby. Sure. Um, But compared to, you know, having $75 million of the family's money to do with as you please, the dynamic this sets up is that he is, like, very bound to his mom's wishes. Okay. Mm-hmm. And kind of boxed in. 
in several ways. So as this trust fund kid who's making half a million dollars for nothing while he's at Harvard kind of, you know, messing around. Half a million our money? Half a million in our money. Imagine okay. if today somebody was just like paying you 500 grand a year to do nothing. That's I mean, his life. You could, what, I mean, what can you even do with that? Right. I mean, oh. can't, I'll tell you what you can't do. You can't buy a second yacht to go sail no. around Europe with. No. Um, so he's like, he's going to have to do something in his life, right? But he's not a particularly great student. He's going to have to come up with some plan because he's not going to have access to like just live off of the money like his parents and his grandparents did. Oh, and he's he's actually incapable of living off of half a million dollars a year. I mean, if he wants to be rolling with like the fancy New York establishment, right? They're like high, you know, oligarch society. Mm. And so he can live off of it, but he can't like flaunt it. So if he doesn't have money, what he needs is power. Exactly. Yeah. And right at the same time, a year after his dad dies and it's clear that the mom is just holding everything, he's, he's not going to get a big inheritance right away. Mm-hmm. In 1901, his fifth cousin, Teddy Roosevelt, is elected president. Fifth cousin. Okay, Fifth wow. cousin. So what that means is if you go back to the great-great-grandfather we started with. Isaac. If you go back to the very first Isaac, uh-huh. he had a brother. Sure. And if you trace that down in like a parallel line for four or five generations, you have a Teddy Roosevelt on one side and an FDR on the other. Got it. They go way back, but they haven't been like related recently. Do they have that shared wealth? Like, was Isaac's brother equally as wealthy? So what you ended up having was FDR's side of the family was what they called the Hyde Park Roosevelt's. This is the people that were the sugar refinery money. Yes. That lived in Hyde Park, New York, and were kind of like this high society group of people. Mm -hmm. The separate Teddy Roosevelt side, he was like a cowboy and like out on the range. Mm -hmm. He he was still wealthy. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, incredibly wealthy, but they weren't living in New York society. They were like in the Western frontier part of like the Rough Riders. I don't know if you've heard of that. It's Teddy Roosevelt's like uh, frontier group of like soldiers. I thought you were going to ask me about the Rough Riders, the um, hip hop group. <laughs> R-U-F-F, Rough Riders. Um, uh, I've heard of both, in fact. Okay, I yes. prefer one to the other, but, what, you know, if given the choice. Fair, fair, fair enough. <laughs> uh, different Rough Riders. But, yes, they were also incredibly wealthy. Okay. Just, like, in a different part of the country where they amassed their power. Sure, like oil money. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Although I have to check. I don't know actually where that money came from, but that... Oh, I just mean, like, the equivalent, like... Out people West money. who are wealthy in the West, it's oil money. Yeah, I think I think they were or railroad magnets, okay. magnates, if I'm remembering correctly. Better if they're magnets. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Dangerous, though, by all those metal trains. <laughs> Regardless, in 1901, Teddy Roosevelt becomes president. And as this young college kid, you know, um, 19 years old at this point? No. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 19. Yeah, 19 years old, FDR sees this and is like... If I can't have $75 million, I want power. And he sets his sight. He's like, this guy is my hero. So Teddy Roosevelt becomes his hero and his role model, and he begins to try to shape his life in that direction. Okay. The issue is he's got a little bit of resources, but he's not connected to this politically powerful part of the family. Okay. And he's got to figure out his path conveniently. In 1902, the year after Teddy is elected president, FDR starts up a romance with Eleanor Roosevelt. Mm. And her maiden name is Eleanor Roosevelt. What? So to be clear, (laughs) she is Teddy Roosevelt's niece. 
So, whoa, okay. She's the niece of the president. Okay. And right after he's elected, FDR is like, hey, your last name's already Roosevelt. You're like my fifth or sixth cousin. (laughs) Nice to meet you. You don't have to do anything at the Social Security office at that point. <laughs> yeah. I mean, not that it existed until him, but I'm just saying, like, <laughs> yes. you don't got to change your name. Yeah, no name is required, right? Uh, and by all accounts, they have a genuine romance. Okay, and he's 20. He's 20. She's a bit older, right? Isn't she, like, three or four uh, years older? I'd have to check. It um, doesn't matter. I think three or four, three or four years younger, but they're roughly oh, the same age. Oh, okay. So she's a teenager. Got it. I, yeah, I don't want to You know what? Let's, let's not speculate. Let's just say... They're around the same age. Yeah, go look it up. If you care about details, please, not to show for you. No. So, yeah, they're around the same age. Uh, and they start this room as they meet, and uh, within a year, they're engaged to be married. I do know one more thing What's about that? their relationship. Hmm. His mother was very displeased by this. I yes. do know that. Yes. Let's I don't know how I know that, though. Well, let's talk about it. Okay. Eleanor had come from this generational wealth on a different branch of the Roosevelt tree. One of the big differences, though, in addition to her being the niece of the president that made her quite an attractive match, is that unlike FDR, both of her parents had already sadly passed away. Oh, no. Yes. So her mother had died from diphtheria, which is a really nasty, contagious bacterial infection. Yeah. It does gross stuff to your body. Don't Google it unless you're into that kind of thing, but it's it's horrifying. Mm -hmm. I made that mistake. And her father died of alcoholism. And so... Rough. Both rough ways to go. Both rough. She also lost a brother, like, around the same time. And so she had a ton of death in her family. But she and FDR meeting and FDR's mother hates her. There's some speculation that FDR and his mom were like the close, you know, were very close. Yeah. It's a concept that I saw a TikTok about. It's called family of origin triangulation. And basically like it is when a parent and a child are closer than the parent and their spouse. And so when that child finds a spouse of their own, then that parent is threatened and it becomes very problematic. It's why people have like nightmare in-laws or whatever. Mm, because, like, the parent, the in-law, is mm-hmm. essentially feeling threatened at, like, their most intimate relationship, which should be with their own spouse, but instead is, like, with the child. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a, it's like a another woman type scenario. Very much so. Yeah. Well, this this is what happens. Um, they are engaged. You know, they meet in 01. They're engaged. No, they meet in 02. They're engaged in 03. So he's young, 21. Yeah. And his mom says, uh, you, you can't tell anybody about this engagement. Uh, you have to keep it a secret. Because? She just didn't like her, didn't think it was uh, a good match for him. Maybe she thought it was like social climbing on his part. Uh, you know, there's speculation. In response, what she does is once the engagement's announced, or they say they're going to announce it, she makes him keep it a secret and then takes him on a like six-month vacation away from Eleanor. What? Just like going a, you know, a mother... A mother-son trip. Fun mm-hmm. for that. And just, like, hope it will fizzle out. Like, oh, um, do you remember oh, the Arrested Development? Like, oh, what is it? The Yeah, brother, mother. The mother-lover competition? Mother-lover, yeah. <laughs> I, the thing I was thinking of was that Cards Against Humanity, like, what's something that's kid-tested mother-approved? And someone said, like, an Oedipal complex? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Ooh, gross. Um yeah, that, that is so strange. But also, who would be foolish enough to get engaged at 21? 
Uh, ridiculous. Uh, yeah. What are you going to be? 34 with the same person for like 13 years at this point? Come on. Who does that? Pure fools. Idiots like us. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, this is this is a absolute call out on our part. <laughs> yes. If you're 21 and engaged, mazel. Like, I don't know. Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> Get a therapist now. <laughs> but he does it. And the mom takes him on vacation. Mommy... Sun vacation. Ooh, and so gross. Yeah. Um, her hope is that they will come back and have fizzled out, but they don't. No. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. Yeah. Backfired. They end up moving forward with it. He graduates from Harvard, gets a associate's in history. <laughs> okay. I mean, like, doesn't even go for the four I year. I didn't even know Harvard offered associate's degree. If you had enough money, I'm sure they'll offer whatever the hell you want. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and name the gymnasium after you. But he decides to go to law school with his at Columbia with his associates in history. You don't have to have a degree to go to law school. Kim no. Kardashian's doing it. Yeah. I'm not even sure she graduated college or went to college. I don't think so. No, you just have to. It's like there's some mechanism by which you are an apprentice and then you take a series of bar exams and... You're a lawyer. Yeah. Now it's an LSAT, but I don't know what it was. There, it's probably like, oh, you, you connections, right? You're a Roosevelt. Great. Yeah. Stamp approved, whatever. As he's in law school, they set a wedding date, and they were going to set one, but he moves it so that it can line up with when Teddy Roosevelt, the president, is going to be in town in New York Ooh. for a St. Patrick's Day parade. And then they convinced Teddy Roosevelt to walk Eleanor down the aisle at the wedding. Very strategic. Very strategic, right? I mean, if your dad's dead, the next best thing is the president, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it is her uncle. Her parents are both deceased. So, mm -hmm. like, it's not an unreasonable choice. The fact that he w it was the uncle who happened to be president. Yeah. <laughs> not a mistake. <laughs> And he agrees to it. So in 05, 1905, they get married. He is a law school student at the time. Like you were just alluding to a minute ago, you just have to take the bar to be a lawyer. Uh -huh. So before he's done with law school, he takes the bar and passes. Wow. And he's like, oh, fuck law school. And he drops out. <laughs> so he got an associate's and then dropped out of law school. Well, he's a lawyer. And he's still a lawyer. Yeah. yeah. And then he goes. He's now married to the president's niece. And he has a law degree, so he gets, of course, a super cush gig at a very fancy law firm right away. Things are looking up for this trust fund baby. Yeah. I mean, like, he is just living the high life. No more hard times. As his father had done, leaves the raising of any children to his wife, Eleanor. They... As, as most fathers did at the time, in fact. Yes. And they will ultimately have six kids. Wow. Eleanor, at the time told her friends that she knew, quote, absolutely nothing about handling or feeding a baby, end quote. So she, in turn, just, like, hires caregivers to, like, <laughs> entirely raise the children, just hands them off. There's a clear pattern in her mothering where she is not super stoked about it. Okay. And essentially has other people not just do the sustenance of her kids, but a lot of, like, the emotional connection to her kids as well. The sustenance part is the easiest part. <laughs> it's true. The emotional stuff is much, much harder than feeding a child. Yeah, fair enough. At this point in their lives, they've got the beginnings of a foundation. He's kind of set up, got the wife and kids at home. 
he sets his sights on the thing that he has seemingly been triangulating himself around for the last decade, okay. which is a political career. Mm-hmm. He runs for state senator, spends like some ridiculous like three or four times what the closest person spends, buys it, buys the office, gets elected. That is that is actually how it works. Yeah. Becomes uh, spending his own money. Right. In particular. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Self-finances the campaign. He is uh, promoted at some point to assistant secretary of the Navy. He starts making a salary that's equivalent in today's money to like another 500000 a year on top of his like trust fund money. He gets appointed to the Navy. He never served. No, he never served. Assistant secretary of the Navy is like a government job. Uh, right. It's not mm-hmm. a naval position. It's like a cabinet yep. type thing. Yep. Administrative. Within eight years of like the state senator and federal government job, he is recruited to be on the presidential ticket as the vice president in 1918. Is this a Roosevelt Roosevelt ticket? No. Okay. Teddy Roosevelt had gotten out of office. Teddy Roosevelt was a Republican. I I think I knew that. Yes. So the Democratic establishment sees that there is a promising younger Roosevelt who is a Democrat. Mm. And they're like, hey, we can basically ride off the popularity and the name recognition of the Republican candidate, but also get all this publicity for like, now the Roosevelt's are a Democratic political party. Mm-hmm. And they put him on the presidential ticket as a vice president. That ticket is not successful. He isn't elected. The Democrats don't win that year. But in that year, while they're campaigning, during the 14th year of their marriage, Eleanor, who up, up, up until this point has been a dutiful, if slightly distant, mother for their children and a <laughs> homemaker. Sure. Discovers in one of his suitcases while they're unpacking a bundle of love letters Uh-oh. to FDR from Eleanor's social secretary, Lucy Mercer. The letters aren't just love letters, they include detailed plans for FDR planning to leave Eleanor for Lucy. Yikes. It's, you know what? Again, this is a very strategic move on his part. If you're going to have an affair, you want to do it with the woman who is planning the social calendar of your wife. That's true. Who's that is very strategic. Who's going to know when she's out of town, going to schedule her for things, going to know, like, okay, she's leaving the house. I'll Send come her on over. Send bridge club. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, whatever it's going to be. It's very sneaky. Eleanor is crushed. Long afterwards, she would tell her friends that the discovery of the letters was just utterly devastating for her. Mm. Um the bottom, she said the bottom seemed to have dropped out of her life. Ouch. Apart from being a homemaker and a mother, which is no small task, not very large job. Did Eleanor have any other, I don't, I want to say like role outside of the home? Was she savvy politician's wife? Was she just high society? Like what was her deal? She was dutiful. Mm-hmm. And involved in society and like doing all of the like mm-hmm. political wife theater that you would expect. Mm-hmm. But she had no real role outside of the home and things. Got it. She had like taken this on as her life. But I mean, one, being a homemaker is a hard job. It is not as hard if you inherit generational wealth and have a team of people doing it with you. 100%. Right? She was not hard up for help. Correct. But. This kind of destroyed the facade of, like, the thing that was her driving force being to, like, be this. Enough. Yeah. Be enough for this man and, like, support him. Mm-hmm. 
It's not clear how the mother-in-law finds out about this. <laughs> um, I'll tell you how. If I were Eleanor, she would find out. <laughs> ring, ring. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like Cardi B says, I'm a call your mom. Tell her she raised a bitch. <laughs> that is what happens then. <laughs> Let's just imagine that is the call that happens. And FDR's mom is like, oh, hell no. You are not going to ruin this family's like six generations name mm-hmm. in the public eye by getting a divorce. She says, if you do that, I will disinherit you. Oh, no. Which is like the 50 to $75 million prize he's got his eyes on in addition to the political career. And that quickly puts an end to the idea that they would get divorced. But, what if Eleanor wanted a divorce? Uh, my guess is that that kind of thing just wasn't done. Okay. Well, she had enough wealth of her own, but all right. Potentially. I think it's still difficult at this time in history, right, for sure. any woman, even if she has wealth. I think that's the kind of concept you would see, like, women would be like wards where, like, you would have, like, a male relative who would, like, mm. you would have to live with or be or would yeah, be responsible for you. Yeah, couldn't even get, like, a bank you. account by yeah. yourself, right? Because this is, like, 1940? Yeah, maybe couldn't own property. Like, she had wealth that was technically hers in the side of the family, but, like, I, I'm assuming, if my memory serves me correctly, that this is still... Oh, this isn't 40. This is still 1918. But this is still a time when, like, oh, the wealth does not yeah. serve her very well on her own. Got it. I don't know where I got 1940 from. Yeah, we're still 1918. Oh, 14 years into marriage? Anyway, 14 the, years into marriage, yeah. yes. So, Sorry about my math, folks. <laughs> the thing this does for Eleanor, though, is even though it devastates her conception of herself, it is basically a chance to say, fine, you have to stay with me because your mom says so. <laughs> I'm going to do whatever the fuck I want. Yes. And... And I... Lucy's on that list of things she wants to do, right? Okay, we're going to get there. Okay. We're going to get there. Just making sure. At this point, their marriage, Eleanor and FDR, becomes mm-hmm. more of a political partnership. Mm. Be- but she's disillusioned with being a housewife, but mm-hmm. now she becomes active in public life. Got it. And focuses now on her social work rather than like the role as a wife. Got it. Soon after this, she also buys and establishes a separate home in Hyde Park basically never really lives with him for any extended period of time ever again. Wow. This break is so severe that at the very end of his life, in like the final years, he's like, I am in very poor health. It's failing me. Please, please come back home and live with me. And she's like, yeah, no thanks. Oh, no. Not going to do it. Nope. In sickness and health, this. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, right? Wow. It's funny you should mention sickness and health. Because that first happened in 1918. Very quickly thereafter, in 1921, they're on vacation. And he's swimming in these lakes, hanging out at camps, Mm -hmm. and falls drastically ill. Oh, no. His symptoms were fever, facial paralysis, paralysis of his, like, legs, bowel and bladder issues, numbness. It was just all bad. And the doctors diagnose him with polio. At, he's like 40. He is 40 years old now. Whoa. Usually kid, kids are the ones that would yeah. get polio. Yeah. But they diagnose him with polio. He withdraws from public life. He hadn't become vice president. He had gone back and done some other job besides being a lawyer, worked in business. He is basically taken away from all of that and just has to recover. Mm-hmm. He hears about this thing called hydrotherapy, which is like soaking in hot tubs, essentially. Mm-hmm. He's like, I like this. And so he goes to Warm Springs, Georgia, 
and buys a spa. No. Uh, just buys the whole thing. It eats up like two-thirds of all of their wealth that they had at this point. What? It is a massive thing. Oh, my gosh. But given that he's like suffering from paralysis and all these other things, mm-hmm. he's like, whatever helps, you know, he just spends the money in one big chunk. And it's not like a spa like cucumbers on your eyes. This is like a, like a John Kellogg health clinic spa. Yes. Like Warm a sanatorium or whatever they're called. Exactly. Warm Springs, Georgia, I'm assuming is actual natural hot springs. Yeah. And he is soaking in those and like it is helping with his symptoms and recovery. Mm. He will still be paralyzed permanently from the waist down as a result of this illness. So he is never going to recover fully. But he does begin a lifelong campaign both philanthropically and then later in his role in government, federal government, begin this campaign against polio. There is a thing that we now call the March of Dimes. Yes. Which is something that comes out of something he starts much later where he asks people to just send in dimes to help like find cures for polio and things. So he, mm-hmm. one of the reasons he is on the dime is because he starts this program that becomes called March of Dimes to help eradicate polio. Yes. One of the ironies of all of this is that FDR almost certainly did not have polio. Oh, really? Yeah. So the surprise that you gave at the fact that he was a 40-year-old being diagnosed with polio. Meningitis? Uh, no. It, oh. Modern Staff? doctors and historians also shared that surprise. And when you look at his actual illness, one of the things polio does is it can paralyze you, but it usually only affects one side of the body. Right. And he was his lower extremities on both sides. Mm -hmm. For a lot of other reasons, uh, the best guess at his actual diagnosis is Guillain-Barre syndrome. Yeah. Which is an autoimmune disorder. Mm -hmm. It affects the extremities of your nerves. And it matches almost point for point exactly what he suffered from. Usually, though, it's temporary. Or at least now it is. Now there's enough medical progress that, like, if if you get it... And I know this because a number of celebrities have gotten it. Some been on People.com. It's <laughs> not permanent. It takes a while to recover, but it's not permanent anymore. Yeah. Two factors affected the fact that it was permanent for him. One is that I'm sure that the state of treatment <laughs> today yeah. is not the same as the state of treatment then. Uh, well, actually, three reasons. The second reason is that I don't think Guillain-Barre had been discovered yet as a thing. So sure. I don't know if the treatments were even there. And then three, they were treating him for polio, which was absolutely not going to (laughs) work and uh, did not help at all. Got it. Maybe it's because of the health spa he buys in Warm Springs, Georgia. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe it's because Eleanor begrudgingly like is a participant in his recovery process. But somehow he is able to recover enough where although he will be paralyzed from the waist down for the rest of his life, he recovers from a lot of the other symptoms and decides he is ready about seven years later, 1928, mm-hmm. 1929, to reenter public life. And he runs for the governor of New York. Just comes out swinging. Yeah. No city council. I mean, he'd done the state rep thing, and then uh-huh. he'd been assistant secretary of the Navy. He'd run for vice president and lost. So he's like, you know what, governor of New York, I'm, I'm done like waiting for these like piddly little positions. Mm-hmm. I'm going big. Yes. This is the time when Eleanor and FDR established that she will not only just be free to do as she pleases socially and for whatever causes she likes, and they will live separate lives. But as he begins to get back into politics after this illness, they establish this understanding that she will also work in whatever political way she wants as well. Okay. And so she becomes a governor's wife and publicly fulfills lots of those responsibilities. But also they agree that 
if he's in politics, that she can also pursue whatever political agenda or priorities that she likes and Mm -hmm. use the full powers of whatever authority that he's got to do her own thing as well. Okay. He agrees to this. They, They have an understanding and they go into this campaign in full force together. 1929, he's elected. And can you think of any other major historical events that would happen that year? 29? Uh, Yeah, the markets crash. Yes, the 1929 stock market crash. This crash is the greatest financial, not recession, what's, um, depression. Depression. Yeah. Yeah. Sets off. You might, you might, one might say like an actual, the Great Depression. (laughs) This this event sets off the Great Depression. (laughs) FDR is the new governor of New York, is kind of looking for ways that he can help. He starts this thing called Fireside Chats, which become really famous, where he Mm -hmm. does a weekly radio address. Um, It is a new communications medium, and early political adopters to new communications mediums tend to use them in untraditional ways Mm -hmm. and can get great political advantage from that. So he talks directly to the people once a week and is a comforting kind of presence in a lot of people's lives. And that's the inspiration for Prince Philip telling the queen she should televise her coronation. Yes. Because he was like, hey, Roosevelt did this thing with the radio. We have the TV now. You need to do this thing. Yeah. Funnily enough, FDR will also become the first American president to ever appear on TV. Oh, wow. So he is at the forefront of those technologies available to him. But it is definitely used to his great advantage. At some point in the future, whoever inherits this podcast is going to be like, yeah, and um, Obama was the first president to be on MySpace. (laughs) (laughs) Ooh, it hits different. Not as as classy. Rough, rough choice. Yes. If Obama had a MySpace, I'd really like to see it. Oh, I hope so. I mean, first. Uh, He feels like more of a friendster guy to me, honestly. Oh, okay. Sure. I mean, I think he was the first president to be on Twitter. Yeah. Or like the first sitting president, right? Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure he was. George Bush. I don't know. Yeah. I, well, there was probably some sort of account. I don't know. Who knows? Who knows? Regardless, FDR uses the friendster of his day <laughs> to great political effect. While this is happening, this Great Depression, President Hoover and the other Republicans that are in charge are essentially approaching this like it's going to subside soon. It's going to go away. Mm-hmm. And Roosevelt sees this and thinks they really don't appreciate the seriousness of the situation. Roosevelt establishes a state unemployment commission and a lot of other like direct economic programs to try to help people of New York. He publicly endorses the idea of unemployment insurance for the first time. He's the first governor to do so. And these are incredibly popular programs. He wins re-election as the governor of New York by a landslide and realizes that if these ideas are popular enough here and the rest of the nation is struggling, he is finally at the moment where he can make a bid for the presidency. FDR talks to Eleanor. They agree that he's going to run for president and that their political partnership will continue. She signs up to be this role of the first lady. The good wife. The good wife. In their relationship, when it had become more of a formality, one of the things she'd still asked him, though, was to not have more affairs. She's like, we don't have to, you know, be in love, but she didn't want to be in an open marriage Ooh, I mean, I'm sure he doesn't want to be in a sexless marriage either. Yeah, Um, that's probably true. Because one of the direct quotes that she wrote to her friends is that she disliked having sex with her husband. And she once told her daughter, Anna, that it was, quote, an ordeal to be born. Like, (laughs) like ridden. 
right? Mm-hmm. Uh, sex was an ordeal for her. Okay. So she was not having sex with him. He eventually d- breaks this promise and has a bunch of affairs. Yeah. Right? She's pissed, but they have this, like, arrangement where, like, they're going to be political allies. Mm-hmm. And so she begins to have affairs as well. Okay. During the presidential campaign, Eleanor builds a close relationship with the reporter Lorena Hickok. And Hickok had covered the Roosevelts and specifically Eleanor in the press during the last few months of the presidential campaign. And Lorena Hickok fell madly in love with Eleanor Roosevelt. It happens. Eleanor fell in love with her as well. So during this time period, Eleanor wrote daily 10 to 15 page letters to Hick, as she called her. Okay, so yes, this Okay, this tracks. That's very that that is what that is what girls do. <laughs> Write ten to fifteen page letters every day. Ha, I mean, yes. Have I met? Women? Have you ever met a lesbian? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, I have. Um, yeah. Lorena Hickok was planning to do a bi- biography of the first lady, and so they had this like established pretense for spending a ton of time together. Mm-hmm. Um, but the letters. Included quotes like, um, I want to put my arms around you and kiss you at the corner of your mouth. And I can't kiss you, so I kiss your picture. Good night and good morning. When FDR ultimately wins the presidency Mm -hmm. at the inauguration in 1933, Eleanor wears a sapphire ring that Lorena had given to her. Ouch. Yeah. So they are madly in love. But during the same years... There was Washington gossip that historians have not been able to definitively prove that Eleanor was also romantically involved with one of the administrators of the administration, Harry Hopkins, Mm. who worked closely with her. And there is much better evidence that Eleanor also had a close relationship and passionate relationship, maybe not physical, but may have been a physical affair. Intimate of some sort. Intimate relationship with one of her bodyguards, Police Sergeant Earl Miller, okay, who was assigned by the president to be her bodyguard. Sure. So she had fallen for Lorena, but she was in relationships with both men and women Yeah. during this time. A lot of people talk about Eleanor as, uh, you know, one of the first lesbian women in the White House and essentially out lesbian women. But really, you know, she was having relationships with both men and women. And it mm-hmm. seemed like as well her Attraction and love for FDR at the beginning of the relationship was genuine as well. Of course, yeah. So there is some break in time between these different relationships, Mm -hmm. but all of them seem genuine and seem to go on for years at a time. And FDR knows. And at some point, FDR finds out. Got it. And so even though this is not exactly what he had in mind or even she had in mind at the beginning, they establish both a very functional political alliance and relationship supportive of each other and also this understanding where they manage to work well together and have all of these other relationships in addition to their marriage. Yeah. Lots of people have consensual non-monogamous relationships that are functional. Yes. Even though this one didn't quite start out consensual to start with. (laughs) Yeah. um, One of the things that historians say is that this kind of arrangement is um, just kind of remarkable for the time because it was not a secret in D.C., Right. But here you have a sitting president and a sitting first lady who are kind of very openly just like, fuck your rules. Right. And just doing whatever they want and Mm -hmm. build this kind of um, system that works for them. And 
don't seem bothered by it and explicitly say in the letters, like, I don't care what anybody thinks. Like, what are they going to do? Right. Like, yeah. This is not a new political structure. There's this podcast called Jobsolete, and they have an episode about the king's mistresses. And it was well established in Europe, in many countries for centuries, that kings would have their queen, which was a political relationship, an alliance two countries made. And they had their like headmistress or like a series of mistresses. It was a formal job that was paid. Wait, what? Yes. And um, it's such an interesting episode for this podcast. I would highly recommend it. Yeah, the the king's mistress was a paid position that women vied for, competed for. Uh, often it didn't last. Like the king would go through multiple mistresses, but really those were the people that he had intimate romantic relationships with while the queen was essentially just bearing his children and being a political partner. Interesting. Yeah. I didn't realize it had that kind of like a such a long established history. It's yeah, like a formal structure. Wow, interesting. So they're just taking a page out of the king's books. Yeah, apparently so. Okay, so, so far, FDR has really not, despite being like a trust fund baby douchebag, has really not <laughs> done anything super terrible. Um, like, he cheated on his wife a bunch of times and, like, done that and, like, you know, stumbled his way into super high-paying careers just because he was sneaky about who he married and positioned himself well. But this is a big story. Sure. So I think we... Stop here, and people come back next week for FDR, the presidential years. Right. Two things before they come back. One, trust fund baby douchebag, new band name I called it. (laughs) Yes. Two, does it get get sloppier? Uh, What I will... Like, tell us what we're in store for, because this was a good, interesting episode, but it's not like... It's not despicable yet. Yeah, yeah. What I will say is that... Despite all of his accolades, mm-hmm. FDR ends up doing things as president with his presidential power that are not just vile, but that directly lead to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people that he thinks of as inferior to white people. Yeah, that's pretty despicable. Yeah, it's pretty rough. All right, we'll come back next week. <laughs> yeah. Until that episode, though, if people want to go back and listen to any of the other back catalog or interesting stories to tide them over, mm-hmm. where can they find us? They can find us on social media at Your Heroes Pod or on our website at meetyourheroespodcast.com. Yep, and please like, share, rate, review, spread the word, tell your friends. And until next week, don't be a hero. Don't be a hero. Bye. Bye.